Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I'm in the midst of changing jobs, which will be good once I'm done, but I'm exhausted right now. By the time this drops, I should be settled into my new gig and hopefully back to writing a little every day so that I can keep recording episodes every week. I do have a fancy new headset microphone that hopefully is working well. We'll find out once um, <laughs> once I'm done recording. Anyway, today we have book three of Metamorphoses. As a reminder, I am working from the Humphreys translation. When we last left off, Jove, in his bull disguise, was carrying Europa off. Book three picks up there. Upon reaching Crete, Jove takes off his disguise. But back home, Europa's father, King Agenor, has no clue where his daughter has been taken. He dispatches his son Cadmus to go and find her. And he'd better succeed, because if he doesn't, well, he might as well not come back, because he'll be exiled anyway. Cadmus does the logical thing and goes to Apollo for help. Apollo tells Cadmus to follow this particular cow, which Cadmus does. She doesn't lead him to Europa, but she does lead him to a lovely meadow where he decides to make a sacrifice to Jove. This requires water, so he sends his men off to fetch some. It doesn't go well. There's this serpent, sacred to Mars, by the well, and it does not want to share the water. Cadmus, shall we say, dispatches the snake, which is good for Cadmus's men, but turns out to be not so good for Cadmus. To put it simply, he's cursed. Minerva does pop down from Olympus and tells him to sow the serpent's teeth to grow some people. Now, we already know this never turns out well, but Cadmus does, as he's told, and the army that grows out of the ground are very angry and not very bright. They wind up killing each other until only five remain. Of these, Echion drops his weapons, asks for peace, and is granted it. And it is these remaining brothers who help Cadmus build a new city... Thebes. And then he marries the daughter of Venus and Mars. And Cadmus and his new wife have some children who turn out okay, and their children have children, and, well, that's where the trouble starts. One of these grandsons is named Octaon. And Ovid is certain that you'll agree that Octaon is really quite blameless in his fate. You see, Octaon and some friends are out hunting, and it's getting hot, so he tells his friends they should all take a break. As for Octaon, he wanders into this lovely valley called Gargafi. He doesn't know that it's sacred to Diana, so he has no reason to know that she's going to be bathing in the waters there. He accidentally stumbles upon the site and, well, sights a naked Diana, which she does not take well. She turns him... (laughs) She turns him into a stag. He's hunted down by his own dogs, and Diana is only satisfied once he has been killed by them. The gods are divided on whether Diana's actions are just. Juno doesn't weigh in, but she is secretly pleased. She doesn't like Agnor's family because of the whole Jove-Europa thing. Plus, there's Semele, one of Cadmus's daughters, and therefore one of Agnor's granddaughters. She's pregnant, and Juno knows that Jove is the father. Juno decides that Semele should be punished somehow. She disguises herself as Semele's maid, Beori, and comments about how, if Semele's lover really is Jove, he should show himself to her the same way he shows himself to Juno. The seed planted, Semele decides to ask. First, she asks Jove for a favor, and he makes that age-old mistake of swearing on the sticks that he'll give her 
anything. So when she asks him to show himself in his true form, he can't say no. So he does, and it kills her. Jove panics, performs a hasty cesarean section, and sews the fetus up in his thigh until it can survive outside the womb. After the baby is born, Jove puts it in the care of Auntie Ino. Now, after the baby is born twice, once of Semele and once of Jove, Jove and Juno get into an argument over whether men or women enjoy sex more. Jove thinks women do. They ask Tiresias to be the judge because he's lived as both a man and a woman. He once saw these snakes mating and he used his staff to separate them and for some reason that made him turn into a woman. And after living as a woman for seven years, he saw them again, so he did the same thing and it turned him back into a man. Tiresias agrees with Jove, which pisses Juno off, so she strikes him blind and thinks, and as a thanks, Jove gives him the gift of prophecy. Thanks to this gift, Tiresias becomes famous far and wide. One of the first to test his accuracy is the naiad Liriope. She's ravished, at least as translated by Humphreys, by the river god Cephasus, and bears a son whom she names Narcissus. I bet you can guess where the story is going. Anyway, Tiresias tells her that as 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 long as Narcissus doesn't know himself, he'll live to a ripe old age. Anyway, Narcissus is pretty. Remember Helen? Yeah, he's that pretty. When he's 16, which is that age and that sweet spot, no longer a boy, but not quite a man. Anyway, everyone loves him. Boys, girls, mortals, immortals, including one particular nymph named Echo. Anyway, Narcissus has eyes for none of them. Now, Echo is quite the chatterbox, and Jove takes advantage of this. He has her distract Juno while he's hanging out with the other nymphs, at least long enough for him to escape unnoticed, if we can really believe that Juno doesn't notice. She's Juno. You know she's noticed. So Juno decides to punish Echo by taking away her voice. She can no longer express her own thoughts. All that she can do is repeat the last thing that someone has said to her, like an echo. Echo. So, Echo sees Narcissus out hunting and falls head over heels for him, but she can't tell him that she loves him because she can only repeat what others have said to her. Narcissus gets separated from his companions, and Echo tries to have a conversation with him. It goes about as well as you'd imagine, ending with Narcissus pushing her away and declaring that she has no chance with such a catch as him, and Echo shrivels up until nothing is left but her voice. As for Narcissus, he goes back to his life, breaking hearts along the way. One spurned youth calls on heaven to curse Narcissus. Nemesis is all too eager to help. She calls Narcissus to she causes Narcissus to catch sight of his reflection in a pond. Narcissus is fa- has finally found someone beautiful enough to fall in love with, but this young man disappears each time he reaches out. He stays staring at his reflection until he turns into a flower that you may have heard of, a Narcissus, which is basically a daffodil with white petals instead of yellow, if you're not familiar with what they look like. They're very pretty. Just like Narcissus, who is very pretty. Anyway, Tiresias warned them. And since this prophecy came true, he becomes quite famous for his wisdom. Pentheus still scoffs. Tiresias warns him that Semele's son is going to come to Thebes with a vengeance. And Pentheus scoffs. He'll prove Bacchus is not a god by killing him. Remember how 
bloody Euripides's Baca is. Yeah, that's how Bacchus responds to those sent to kill him. Pentheus still remains unswayed. Even hearing the story of how Bacchus was kidnapped by pirates and turned them into dolphins isn't enough to convince Pentheus that Semele's son is a god. Instead, he decides to spy on the Bacchic rites himself. I know I just said this, but remember Euripides' Bacchae? Yeah, that's the part of the story that we've reached. In their frenzy, the women think Pentheus is a wild animal, and they literally tear him to pieces with his aunt and mother, making the fatal blows. He should have listened to Tiresias. Anyway, that's why everyone in Thebes worships Bacchus these days. And that's the end of book three. amusing covering these stories as told by Ovid while we're also covering them as told in the Bibliotheca. We've just talked about Tiresias and here we have him again and at least this time the result of his decision makes some sort of sense. Juno is mad that he's sided with Jupiter. She's not necessarily mad that he says women enjoy sex more than men do and let's face it there's no way Tiresias can win in this situation. Whose wrath is more dangerous? It's really hard to say. Both gods can be pretty vindictive. And why do I say both? I shouldn't. This entire book shows gods being vindictive. It is not just Juno and, and Jupiter or Jove. Um, I never know what to call him because he uses both names in Latin. Anyway, Ovid comes right out and says that Octan is innocent. He doesn't say the same about Semele, and maybe she is one of the rare cases of a mortal who truly does love Jove, but that doesn't mean she deserves her fate. At the same time, knowing what we know about Jove, Semele's desires or lack thereof wouldn't have changed his actions. So her fate might have been the same no matter what. Is she going along to get along in hopes that that will spare her the fate that she ultimately winds up with. I, who knows? Um, you'd have to talk to Semele to find out, and of course she is no longer with us. Anyway, then we have poor Echo. I mean, we've all known people like her, right? People who just can't stop talking, whether it's nerves, they, they just can't stand the quiet, um, being a kid who needs to narrate everything. I, I don't know where I might find one of those, um, perhaps in my bed behind me. And Jove uses her because she just can't stop. She can't stop herself. She is a chatterbox. And there are people like that, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's who they are. And Juno punishes her for that because Jove uses her. Is it a poor Echo. She doesn't deserve it. And then, of course, we have Bacchus wreaking havoc on his family in Thebes, which is a story we have seen in other sources. Ovid goes into significantly more detail than I chose to because, again, we have covered it multiple times. So what does, what does this tell us about fate, about the relationships between immortals and mortals, the role of the gods in people's lives, even the relationship between immortals and immortals, I mean, Echo and Juno, for example, what does it say about religion? 
pop over to the blog and share your thoughts. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. You can also find me on Patreon as Triumvirclio, should you feel so inclined. In the next episode, we'll cover Book 3, Chapter 7 of the Biblioteca. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.